following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. So uh, we're heading back into the series that we've been in now for the past uh, several weeks. A series called Here We Stand, and we're wrapping it up today. Uh, this will be our final uh, week in the series, and we've, uh, if, you, if you're just new, just catching up today, that's okay. We've been marking the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, which was really a movement of renewal and rejuvenation in the church and in society at the time. Uh, came out of Germany and had a huge effect, and we are uh, heirs of that legacy as Protestant uh, Christians, and we've been talking about some of the things that are most important to us at the center of our faith, we've been talking about the five solars of the Reformation. So we've talked about Scripture alone, sola scriptura. We've talked about solus Christus, Christ alone, that we're saved by Christ, through Christ alone. Uh, we've talked about sola gratia, grace alone. We've talked last week about sola fide, faith alone, that we are saved through faith alone. And then we come today to look at the last solar, which is solideo gloria, glory to God alone. And in some ways, this is like Solideo Gloria is, is not just one of the pillars, it's like the roof on top of the pillars. It it's really just sums up so much of what we've been talking about, and so hopefully we'll just bring all this together beautifully this morning. Uh, and so I want, as, we, as we start reflecting on this, Solideo Gloria, glory to God alone, I want to come back again one last time to the life of this interesting character that we've been looking at over the past few weeks, Martin Luther, this cantankerous little German monk that we've looked at, who got himself into all kinds of trouble and um, really had an extraordinary impact on the church and, and Western civilizations, certainly the development of Europe and so on. And I think quite unwittingly, I don't know that Luther ever really intended to start all that he started. He kind of just um, sought to be faithful to God as best he could, and things just rolled on from there. Um, but Luther, I don't know your impression is, I mean, we've looked at snippets of his life, and we've watched a couple of clips, and some of you went to the movie the other week, and we've kind of gotten into his life a little bit, and you can have this impression, I think, of Martin Luther, that he was this incredible spiritual giant of a man, that he just seemed to live on a different spiritual plane to everybody else, that he had this unbelievable faith, he had this unbelievable tenacity about him, this unbridled courage to take on the religious establishment of his day, and he almost seems to be this kind of larger-than-life figure that we can't really connect to very well. But it's interesting as you start looking at Luther's life. I've read a biography on Luther earlier in the year, and you, and you start getting into the details of his life, and you see this was a man who really struggled. I mean, he re like Luther did not have an easy life. He really battled away. He had a lot of physical ailments. He had a number of different health issues that plagued him for long seasons of his life. He struggled in his faith a lot, which might sound strange, but he did. I think Luther seemed to struggle to shake that perception of God that he'd grown up with, that kind of perception of God as the, as the warmongering ogre. And even though he knew the gospel and he recovered the gospel for so many people, I think personally Luther always just struggled. He was always haunted by that, I think. Struggled to believe that God was really good, that God was really good to him. And it was just an ongoing struggle that, that he had. And he struggled with his mental and emotional health. Luther had serious depression. It's not an area of his life that's often talked about. Um, maybe some people think it's embarrassing. But Luther had severe, we would say today, chronic 
depression. Of course, this was a time before depression was a diagnosed illness. But by all accounts, by his own writings and by all accounts, he struggled with serious, serious depression for long, long periods of his life. And he often had the sense of being abandoned, a sense of being feeling like he was alienated from God, even though he knew he wasn't. But this is how he felt within his own being. He often had the sense of being attacked. And you saw that in the movie, those of you that watched the movie, it's sort of like wrestling with the devil, feeling like Satan was putting these thoughts into his mind, sowing these seeds of doubt and pulling him this way and pulling him that. He had this sense of wrestling with the devil and feeling like he was constantly under attack from the devil. I think he felt the burden of this movement that he'd started, that he didn't necessarily mean for everything that happened to happen, and then he just had this incredible weight of leadership, and he struggled under that. He struggled under the strain of all of that, and he spent some long, dark nights of the soul in a pretty low place. And one of the things that Luther used to try and cheer himself up when he experienced this severe depression was music. He loved music. Uh, And as a pastor and a teacher, he got his churches singing. I mean, he really led to a real renewal of congregational singing. He he played music. He sung music. He wrote music. Uh, He wrote a number of of, uh, hymns and songs that have been really well known, including Away in a Manger. That was one of Luther's songs. And uh, he would find that by playing and singing music, it was this therapeutic thing for him. It was this cathartic experience of coming back to the hope in Christ, coming back to what he knew to be true and coming back again to Jesus. One of the most famous hymns that he wrote, not so well known today, but really the most famous hymn that came out of the Reformation that Luther wrote, is called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And he wrote this song in the year of his deepest depression. I'll just read you a couple of verses and, and try and hear these words in the context of a man battling with chronic depression. And here, is, here are the words of the song. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great. And armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Several other verses go on from there, but you can hear it, can't you? The song that just emerges from the pit of depression and this man who's just clinging to Jesus, clinging to the cross, clinging to Christ through it all, through some very, very dark times. And I say that all and I start with that simply because I think as we reflect on Soli Deo Gloria, glory to God alone, I wonder whether the best illustration of this last sola is actually Luther's life itself. That when you look at Martin Luther, his life is not a life that points to the glory of the man. I mean, he had an amazing mind, but it's, it's not a life that points towards this amazing faith, this bulletproof kind of faith, this invincible kind of faith. His life points towards the glory of God because he was, this is what I find so relatable about him. He was just an ordinary guy in so many ways. He, he had major flaws. He had major faults. He had real weaknesses. He was a struggler. He was a battler. And yet God just reached down in his mercy and touched his life and used him to bring about an extraordinary change It reminds me of the scripture that says God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong, uses the lowly things, uses the poor things, uses the despised things, uses the things that are not, 
I think that's what God did with Martin Luther's life. I think that's what God does throughout Scripture. That's what he's done throughout church history. Doesn't always use the powerful ones. Doesn't always use the rich. Doesn't always use the ones with great status and resources, the ones that everyone else is clamoring towards. God just uses ordinary people, often the battlers, the strugglers, the ones that stumble along in the darkness, and he uses them for his plans and his purposes. It wasn't really Luther that started the Reformation, was it? It was God. And all glory needs to go to God alone. That's soli deo gloria. So as we unpack this a little bit together, I want to go to a passage in the book of Romans this morning. If you've got a Bible, Romans chapter 11, the very end of the chapter, verse 33. And we looked at a couple of verses from Romans last week uh, as, we, as we looked at uh, sola fide, faith alone. And really the whole first 11 chapters of the book of Romans are this beautiful exposition of the gospel of grace. And so much of what we've been talking about, Paul expounds in Romans through the first 11 chapters. He talks about Christ alone. He talks about faith alone. He talks about grace alone. It's all there. He just unpacks this wonderful salvation that we have received. And he gets to the end of all that at the end of chapter 11, and he just bursts into song. He bursts into praise. It's like he can't help himself. A friend of mine puts it like Paul at this point puts down his pen and he picks up his guitar. And he just can't help it. He just, this, this, just pours out of him this song of praise to God. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has ever been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Wonderful passage. It's often called a doxology. The word doxology comes from the Greek word doxa, which means glory. It's the word Paul uses there in verse 36. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And doxa, glory, the word literally means brightness or brilliance or splendor, or radiance, something that has this luminescence about it, something that radiates out a lightness or a brightness. So the, the glory or the doxa of the sun, literally, is its brightness, the brilliance of this huge flaming ball of gas that just exudes this brilliance, this radiance, this luminescence. And so the glory of God is the radiance of all that He is and has and does. The glory of God is the splendor of His majesty, the, the, the brilliance of His character and His righteousness, the radiance of His person and His being, Father, Son, and Spirit, the, the luminescence of God's character as it radiates out through the universe. It's the glory. All that is wrapped up in the doxa of God, the brightness, the, the, the beauty of God's being and His person. Now, we can't see the glory of God directly, just like you can't look directly into the sun. You can't look directly at the glory of God. No human being can look at the glory of God and live. But we can see the glory of God indirectly, just as you can't look directly at the sun, but we feel the rays of the sun, especially on a weekend like this. We feel the warmth of the sun. We can see by the light of the sun. In the same way, we can't see the glory of God directly directly. But we can experience and see the glory of God as it's reflected in the world, as it's reflected in what he's made. We see the reflected, refracted glory of God all around us. That's why Paul says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Paul's saying the whole purpose of creation, the whole purpose of the physical creation is to bring glory to God. 
That's why the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. You look up into the heavens on a starry night, on a clear night, you see the glory of God. You don't see the glory of God directly. You see it reflected in the stars, reflected in the heavens. And they speak of, they testify to the wonder, the brilliance, the splendor, the majesty, the creativity, the genius of the God we worship. We see the reflected glory of God in creation. And we see it in humanity. The purpose of humanity is to bring glory to God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Good to put those two phrases together, eh? Enjoy God, glorify God. The reason human beings exist at all is to give glory to God. That's why we're called God's image bearers. We bear God's image. We reflect back to Him and we reflect out to the world. Something of God's glory, something of God's goodness, something of God's radiance, something of God's majesty. We're intended to be reflectors of the glory of God as His image bearers. And of course, the purpose of salvation, as we've been talking about salvation over the past few weeks, the whole purpose of salvation is the glory of God. You, you ask the question, you go through all the solars. Why did God send Jesus? Why did God give us the scriptures? Why did God show us grace? Why did God allow us to have faith? All for His glory. See, we think it's about us. We're so self-absorbed, we think it's all about us. And we are the beneficiaries of God's salvation. But the reason that God has rescued us and saved us is ultimately for His glory. It's to bring Him glory. That's why Paul's been going through this exposition of salvation. He's been explaining the beauty of grace and faith and Jesus and all of this. And then he is led to give glory to God and just declare how incredible and how amazing God is. That's where all this should lead us. That's where all this thinking about the solars should ultimately lead us. Good theology should always lead to doxology, giving glory, giving praise to God. You know, sometimes theology gets a bad rap, doesn't it? Theology. It's just, you know, it seems boring, it's dry, it's dusty, it's irrelevant, it's all these doctrines, how many angels can fit on the head of a pin, all this kind of stuff. No, theology is wonderfully rich, the study of who God is, Father, Son, and Spirit, and good theology leads to doxology, giving glory to God. Romans gives us the model. It's theology that leads to glory, leads to giving glory. How can you contemplate the being and the person of God without then turning around and saying, how unsearchable are your, are your judgments, your wisdom beyond understanding? To Him alone be the glory. That's where our lives should lead. That's where our theology should lead. That's where our church ultimately should lead and point to the glory of God. Right? Are you with me? Now, here's the interesting thing. Everything that I've said so far was not in dispute in Luther's day. No one would have taken issue with any of this. No one was objecting to the glory of God. Everybody in the church, yes, 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 the glory of God, that's the purpose of creation, that's the purpose of salvation, that's the purpose of humanity. None of that was in dispute. But what is so interesting is the way that the Reformers worked this doctrine out in practice, in real life, on the ground. This is where it gets interesting. Let me give you a couple of verses just to show you how Solideo Gloria plays out at a ground level. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And Colossians 3, 23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters. See, that takes a doctrine that is absolutely cosmic, the glory of God alone, 
and it brings it right down to the level of eating and drinking. And that's where we've got to get to. Because if you just leave it in this lofty sort of realm, we're never actually going to apply it to our lives. But the glory of God is actually something Paul says that affects things as trivial as eating and drinking. So what Paul is doing here is he's, he's breaking down this dividing line that we so often construct in the way that we look at life and look at the world and look at faith. And what we tend to do is we separate out life into two realms, like two spaces. There's the spiritual realm and there's the secular realm. And so in the spiritual realm, we put all of our church activities, going to church, serving in church, giving to church, whatever it might be. Um, in the spiritual realm, we put our uh, quiet times or our devotional life, reading the Bible and praying and doing things that are of an explicitly Christian nature. All that goes in the spiritual bucket. And then we have this secular realm that we kind of think of in our mind, and that's where everything else goes. So that's where your job goes, unless you work for a church, and then you get to be over in the spiritual realm. But everyone else over in the secular realm over here, that's where your recreational life goes, that's where your hobbies and your interests go, that's where your holidays go, that's mostly where your family life goes, your social life goes, all of those things, they go into the secular bucket over there. And we kind of live with this, we might not think about this at a conscious level, but I think subtly this is how our thinking goes. And so we tend to assume the way I'm going to glorify God is through the so-called spiritual areas of life. I can glorify God by singing in church. I can glorify God by reading my Bible. I can glorify God by praying. But when you come over here and you look at everything else that you do for the other six and a half days a week, you wonder, well, I can't really glorify God with this stuff, can I? This isn't really the way in which God's glorified. And so we just leave that alone in the terms of our faith. And this kind of thinking, this kind of split-level view of life, it existed just as much in Luther's day as it did in our day, the way that it played out in the Middle Ages was that you had this separate category of people, monks and nuns, and they were the ones who were set apart to give glory to God by living this secluded, sequestered life, and they'd be able to spend hours praying, and they'd be able to meditate on God and read Scripture if they, if they had access to it, and do penance and the sacraments and confession and all of these things, and they would have all the time to do all these kind of things, and they sort of brought glory to God on behalf of everyone else because it's a bit too much to expect everybody else in the secular category over here to really bring glory to God. These guys over here have hours and hours and hours to pray. They can do it for the rest of us. And so there's kind of this idea that the spiritual ones are the ones who are called to bring glory to God. The rest of us, well, just not so much. And this is exactly what Luther stood against what the reformers stood against, because he saw here in Scripture the way that, as Paul describes it, there is no dividing line. There is no dividing line between the spiritual and the secular. The word secular is not in the Bible. It's not there. Do a word search. It's not there, it's not there in the original languages either. There's nothing really that comes close to it, because there is no secular space. We've kind of got a concept of secular that we've constructed, but the way God sees the world, there is no secular realm because, well, God's created all of life and all creation and all of life is designed to bring Him glory, every single sphere of it, not just this kind of carved off bit over here that we call our spiritual life. All of life is to be lived to the glory of God, even eating and drinking, Paul would say. Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. The secular realm doesn't exist. Everything is spiritual. One of Luther's most famous quotes is this. He said, The handmaid 
can glorify God by milking cows. Now, how on earth do you milk cows to the glory of God? Do you have to lead the cows in a prayer service? Do you have to take the milk and make it holy milk for communion or something? You know, No. How do you, how do you glorify God by milking cows? You milk those cows to the best of your ability. And the way you conduct yourself as a farmhand is with uprightness and integrity and a mindfulness of the fact that whatever you do, you are doing it for God and not for human masters. As you milk those cows in that attitude and with that spirit, you are milking them to the glory of God. Isn't that crazy? You could, you could milk cows to the glory of God. But this is what Luther is saying. I mean, he, he went around telling people, you could be a soldier to the glory of God. You could be a shoemaker and do that for the glory of God. You could be a barber or a teacher. You can do all of these things to the glory of God. And I wonder whether in our day we've kind of drifted back to the split way of seeing the world that the reformers were trying to get us away from, that Paul is trying to get us away from, whether we still live subconsciously maybe with this idea that life still exists in these two separate realms. And it crops up in little ways. It just crops up in little conversations. I notice it in little things. For example, sometimes you have people come into the church and they'll call me Pastor Reuben. You know, now, I, I know what people are doing and what they're saying. and It's a, it's a mark of respect and, you know, they're trying to be gracious and, and so on. And I like having my ego stroked, so I'm all about that. But you know how insecure I am. So people will say this sometimes. And I've said to people, I'm okay with you calling me Pastor Reuben as long as I can call you Architect Tom or HR Manager Kathy or Commercial Sales and Marketing Manager for the Northern Regional Division, John, or whatever it's going to be, you know. It's going to get impractical at a certain point. But if you want to play that game, we can do that game. But do you know what I mean? I mean, I know the heart is good, but just, I just worry that subtly we're drifting back to the old view that it's the spiritual people that work for the church. They're the ones that kind of bring glory to God through what they do. And me and my job and my normal life, well, I'm just kind of not, I'm not bringing glory to God quite as much in what I do. And this whole, this, this, this whole split view of the world is just wrong. It's just not biblical. Sometimes you hear it, you know, people sometimes talk about pastors and so on, and they can kind of compare what pastors do, the job pastors do, with work, having a job in the real world. You know, have you encountered this? You know, well, I've, I've got a job in the real world, you know, and uh, let me just explain how things work in real life. <laughs> and I sort of feel like, what world do I work in? Is it, is it this imaginary world? Is it like a fantasy? When I came from working in a corporate world to working for the church, did I cross some imaginary line into this fantasy land that I now work in the surreal world? You know, it does actually feel like that sometimes. But... <laughs> We can get into this way of thinking just in simple ways of using language. And I, I think we've got to come back to this idea. We can glorify God in every and any sphere of life. If all creation exists to give glory to God, then every person exists to give glory to God. Whether you are involved in so-called Christian ministry or whether you work in a so-called secular job, we can do whatever we do to the glory of God. If you spend your days under the boot of a car, as a mechanic, you can be a mechanic to the glory of God. 
by doing what you do well, by working with integrity, and in thinking about the way that you treat people around you with dignity and with uprightness and with faithfulness. If you work with numbers all day with spreadsheets, you can crunch those numbers and do those spreadsheets to the glory of God. If you work with children, you can work with children to the glory of God. If you work in the armed services, in the military, you can work in those places and spaces to the glory of God and for the glory of God. If you work in the court system, you can work there for the glory of God. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And it simply comes down to asking, how can I, in the course of my daily life, reveal something of God's glory? Simple question. How can I, in what I'm doing, the tasks I go about, how can I reveal something of God? His nature, his, his person, his character. How can I reveal something? How can I reveal something of Jesus? That's how we give God glory is by revealing something to people around us of Jesus. By the way that we work, refusing to be manipulative, refusing to be duplicitous, refusing to work the system to our advantage, in the way that we treat staff and colleagues and customers and clients and patients and whoever else, our superiors as well as our employees, in the way that we treat those in our working world, we can bring glory to God. And by doing all things mindful of the fact that you are working for God, not for human masters, primarily. Doing all things for God, not for human masters. As we have that mindset, we're bringing God into our workplace. And we can do what we do to the glory of God, no matter how far removed it might be from so-called spiritual things or church activities. You can do all things to the glory of God. And it's not just people who are working, by the way. It's also stay-at-home parents. You know, we can set up this hierarchy where it's only people who are working in paid employment that can really glorify God. Luther once, someone made a comment to Luther once about mothers. They made a disparaging comment to him about mothers. And Luther said, no, no, no. Mothers are like um, a pattern of God's love because just like God's love overcomes sin, the love of a mother overcomes dirty nappies. That's what he actually said. That's a quote from Luther. I'm not sure whether he was right about that, actually, because I think, dirty, in my experience, dirty nappies have been quite overpowering. <laughs> but you know what he's saying? You can change dirty nappies to the glory of God. If that task is done, maybe indirectly, as an expression of your love and nurture and commitment to provide well-being for this child, that is done to the glory of God. And you're calling to raise this human being to be a mature and healthy adult. That's glorifying to God. Please don't fall into this unbiblical way of thinking where you think, oh no, it's only by doing big things that I can glorify God. It's only things that have lots of recognition or size or scope or scale or resource to them that I can glorify God. No, no, that's a worldly way of thinking. God is as glorified in the small things as he is in the big things. You can pack school lunches to the glory of God. As you're mindful of God's presence in your ordinary life, as you are seeking to do things with Him and through Him and for Him and reveal something of His glory to those around you, you are doing all things for the glory of God. Whatever stage you are in life, whatever age you are in life, maybe retired, but that's not a time to sort of become turned inwards and become self-absorbed. That's a season of life to ask, how do I glorify God in my retirement years? How do I glorify God with my time? How do I reveal something of who he is to people around me? How do I show something of his presence to other people just on a day-to-day-to-day basis? Whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever lot in life you have, 
You can bring glory to God wherever you are. Johann Sebastian Bach, one of the most famous musical composers in history, one of the most celebrated classical composers in history. And he lived about 100 years after Luther, but very much in the shadow of the Reformation. He was a German, and he was a Lutheran, so he would have been very familiar with all the solars we've been talking about. Bach would have grown up on this stuff. And he showed at a very young age an incredible aptitude for music. But when he was just nine years old, his mother died. Eight months later, his father died. And then Bach went to live with a brother. And he found that playing the organ in his brother's home was a way for him of expressing all that was going on in that little boy's heart. All the emotions, a lot of the sadness over losing his mum and dad. The organ, the music, became his way of processing and expressing this emotion that was bubbling up within him. And he increased in skill and was able to play more and more challenging pieces on the organ. And it got to the point where he was composing his own pieces. He got his first job as an organist at the age of 17. Job, full-time job as an organist. And he worked, in the course of his life, he worked in churches and outside the church as a musician and became a very well-known composer. And Bach, whenever he wrote a piece of music, he would start, of course, with a blank manuscript, and at the top of the manuscript, he'd write the letters JJ, which in Latin stand for Jesu Jivu, Jesus help me. And that would be his way of just acknowledging his dependence on Christ for whatever was going to come next, and just acknowledging that it wasn't of him. He couldn't do it in his own strength. He, he totally relied on the power of God to work through him and work through his music. And then he'd pour his heart and his soul into this composition and it would pour forth from him onto the page. And then when he was finished this composition, at the end of the manuscript, he would write the letters SDG, Soli Deo Gloria, Glory to God Alone. And it was Bach's way of returning glory back to God for everything God had given him, the talent, the skill, the music, the gifts, the whole lot. Just constantly handing that back to God and saying, God, I just want this to reveal who you are. I just want in some small way for you to be known, for your presence, to your, your love, your majesty, your power, to be known through my music. That's, that, that was his greatest desire. Now, we're not all going to be Johann Sebastian Bach, but we can all give glory to God in whatever we do. And I've started just trying to follow Bach's example in my daily life, not composing music. But what I've started doing is at the top of my task list for the day, I've started writing the letters JJ, just to remind me, Jesus, help me. And I've actually found it very, very helpful and very centering to come back at the beginning of my day and just it brings you back to that place of acknowledging, I can't do this. I can't do this by myself. I certainly can't do anything of significance of any eternal value without the help of Christ. It brings me back to that place of total dependence on Jesus. And then at some point in my day, or at the end of the day or somewhere through, or just right at the end of my task list, SDG, Soli Deo Gloria, just to remind myself, whatever I've accomplished today, or whatever I've left unaccomplished today, it's all for the glory of God. I leave it with Him. I leave it with Him. It's His to do with as He wants. I wonder whether you could incorporate that into your daily rhythm. At the beginning of each day, the beginning of your class list or your task list or your client list or your customer list or your patient list or whatever it is, or just whisper it to yourself as you go to work. 
JJ, Jesu Jeevan, Jesus, help me. And then sometime in your day on the way home or at the end of the list for the day or whatever it is, SDG, Sole Deo Gloria. It keeps in our minds and in our hearts that all of life is to be lived to the glory of God, that life is a rhythm of constantly handing back the glory to the one who has given everything to us. We don't have anything in and of ourselves. It's all from God's gracious hand, and he asks us to return it to him. And as we do, we pray, God, may you reveal yourself through me in some small way this day and all the days of my life. And so may this great truth, soli Deo Gloria, be like a banner over our lives. May it be a banner over our church. May everything we do as a church, everything we step into in the new year and beyond, be done for the glory of God, not for us, not even ultimately for our communities or people outside the church. That's, that's our mission, but ultimately for the glory of God, that he may receive the honor and the praise in all things, and that we might just be reflectors of his radiance, his beauty, and his brilliance. May Soli Deo Gloria be the foundation of our lives and our church. May God receive all the glory alone. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we think now about all the places and spaces that we're heading back into after this service. Back to our flats, back to our homes, back to our families, back into jobs tomorrow and homes, social lives and so on. We want to pray, Lord, that whatever we do this week, from the eating and the drinking to the socializing and the dealing with the Christmas craziness and every part of our working and waking lives, may you be glorified. May we reveal something in small ways, ordinary ways, everyday conversations, through simply how we carry ourselves and our lives and our dependence on you, may we reveal something of your glory to those around us. We pray this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.